0: I remember in my first two Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu competitions, apologies for the sports illustrations if you don't play sports, but in my uh, first two Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu competitions, there was a point where I just really wanted to give up. It's that point where exhaustion begins to set in fatigue begins to set in. If you guys don't know what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is, it's sport Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, so don't imagine that I'm punching people in the face, or getting punched in the face. Uh, this is where you're basically grappling and you're trying to win, either by points or you're moving towards something that would be a submission. Uh, so you're kind of you know, threatening some sort of joint lock, you know, breaking somebody's arm. And don't worry, you know, you can give up at any time, you just say, I'm done, and then they let go. But anyways, there is a point where I felt so fatigued. For Ron, maybe the equivalent would be something like hitting the wall in a marathon. And you just feel like your muscles don't work, your lungs don't work, and you just don't have anything left. So imagine, as happened to me just a couple weekends ago, someone pinning you to the ground, leveraging all of their body weight right on top of your solar plexus so you can't breathe, and with everything they have, they're trying to get to a submission move. Well, in those bad situations, the worst thing you can do is freak out. Freaking out alone will get you to give up. So if you want to escape, and then maybe even win... You really have to hone in on what you can control. You have to dial in technique. Create some space so you can continue breathing. You have to dial in your breathing, breathing from the diaphragm and then into the chest in those really bad situations. Otherwise, you expend your energy and your oxygen gets used by your muscles unnecessarily. You gotta dial in your mind. You gotta control the freak out instinct and be prepared to be in a bad situation for quite some time. You have to simply dial in those things and wait for just the right time to escape and get the victory. So with that goal in mind, you have to be diligent with the present things. The Christian life is actually quite similar. The Christian life is compared to a wrestling, it is compared to running a race, and if we are to wrestle well or run well with the goal with the end in mind we must be diligent with the present things. This is what our passage this morning calls us to. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 and we are in verses 7 to 11. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 7 to 11. Now again here's the main point while you're turning there I'm going to repeat this so don't worry just continue turning there with the end with the goal in view we are to be diligent in the present things. 1 Peter, the book, the letter of 1 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter, written to Christians spread throughout what is, now, what is known today as modern-day Turkey. And they were indeed, if you read through the letter, struggling through various trials, trials of various kinds. They were suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. Some were even being assaulted, unjustly being treated. Uh, some were being mocked for their pursuit of Jesus Christ and their Christ-likeness. You can imagine they began to love Jesus and walk in His holiness, but the friends or the family the society that they used to do life with says, hold on a second, why are you… Why does it appear like you guys are abandoning, abandoning us? And so they mocked them for not doing what they used to do. And he reminds them, as they are suffering for the faith, keep The end in mind, with the end in view, be diligent in the present things. Let's go ahead and read 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's go ahead and stand as we read God's Word. This is what 1 Peter chapter 4, 7 says. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, forever and ever. Please be seated. You see very clearly there in verse 7, he reminds us that we are in the end. And he says there, the end of all things is at hand, or the end is near. So point number one, he reminds us that the end is in view. The end is near. The end is in view. And again, it makes all the difference if the end goal and the finish line is in view. Peter wants us fixed on it in our passage. So he reminds us, the end of all things is at hand. Now this phrase here, the end of all things, refers to actually a span of time that ultimately leads up to Christ's return. It's a span of time when he says, the end of all things is at hand, it is near. The span of time between Christ's first coming and then His second coming is called, in other places for example, the end of ages. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 11. And there Paul says the end of ages is upon us right now, right? On them, as he's writing in the first century, as well as, in, as, as, well as for us, because we're waiting for Christ's second coming. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, it speaks that now is the last days. So the Old Testament, God prophesied that something new is going to happen in God's plan of salvation. Something new is going to happen where the doors of salvation are opened wide in Jesus Christ. And in those times, God will pour out His Spirit and call all sorts of people to the ends of the earth to salvation in Him. And that is what is known as the last days, the end of ages, the end of all things. Again it refers to the fact that the day of salvation has dawned in Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection the door of salvation is flung open wide and God is calling his people to himself pouring out his pe- pouring out his spirit on his people and now we have the awesome task and the charge to go to the ends of the earth with the message that salvation is for all who turn from their sins and believe on him This is the day of salvation the end of the ages. But this time, of course, ends. It climaxes at the return of Jesus Christ. So that's good for us to know. We today and the Christians that Peter were living in, uh, sorry, that Peter wrote to, live in the end of the ages, the last days as we wait for Jesus. Christ spoke of His return often. In one example, which I've used in the past for this uh, particular book here, but this is what Jesus says in John 14, "'Let not your hearts be troubled, Right, these Christians are going through trouble. Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. And just to be clear, he says, trust also in me, the eternal Son of God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be What an amazing promise where Christ calms our hearts in the midst of troubles. Troubles of living in a sinful and fallen world. The troubles that come from sin being done to us. Even the troubles that come because we ourselves are sinful and we bring them about. Troubles of persecution like what was going on with these folks and what is currently going on by our brothers and sisters all around the world in the millions. But here Christ tells us, though we live in a sinful world, do not fear, trust in me, I am coming again. Peter speaks of Christ's return as well in 1-7, you can just i I'm just going to reference a whole bunch of verses. You can turn there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, he speaks about the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's when Christ comes again. In 1.11, he talks about the day of visitation. He wants us to be ready for this day. In one thirteen, he talks about the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is grace coming to you in the future. In five four he talks about when the chief shepherd appears. Peter too is, is seeking to trouble or sorry, seeking to comfort our troubled hearts with the grace that is to come. To use the language of Revelation written by John that Edith read for earlier, every tear would be wiped away. There's no more mourning. We see God face to face. For his people, the return of Jesus Christ will be a time of great and marvelous celebration as Christ brings his final deliverance. And while we are right now, right, already free for Christ's people, we're already free from sin's power. We will know it fully then. We know it already. We'll know it fully then. While we know fellowship with the Father now, the peace of God, the love of God, we know God the Father, we cry out to Him, Abba, Father. While we know that now, we will know it fully, know Him fully then. As we know Christ and the forgiveness and the grace and His love and compassion, though we know it now, already, we will know it fully then. But we also know, according to this book even, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5, for those who do not believe, it will be a time of judgment. It's a sobering time. Those who do not believe will give account to Christ the Judge. And the purpose, this grand purpose, when Christ returns according to God's promises, when He rights all wrongs, when He displays all of His righteousness and justice, as well as His mercy and His love and compassion, God will be glorified and gathering His people to Himself. If you're visiting with us and know yourself you know, to be exploring Christianity, you know, we as Christians take great comfort in these truths. It's obvious that today there are so many different reasons why we ought to be troubled, right? You don't have to be a, a Christian to know that, yeah, out in the world there's a whole lot of reasons why we ought to be troubled. And the cause of all of this trouble, really, the Bible says is because everyone has wandered away from God, our Maker. We have all sinned and rebelled against God. We have thrown off God's goodwill for us and His design for us, and we've sought to live according to our own wills. It's this lie, this myth of autonomy. We exist apart from God, and that's totally fine. But right, you would figure that throwing off our very own Maker's will and design would have significant fallout for humanity. I mean, just imagine if in the classroom, for example, you don't, have to be a, uh, you don't have to be a teacher to understand this. We can all imagine if the students throw off the teacher's will, that's going to be chaos in the classroom. If your own children throw off your will to live for their own wills, that's going to cause trouble in the home. And frankly, it's not going to end up, end up well for the children. Well, friends, the same thing has happened with God God and us, we have thrown off, humanity has thrown off our very own Maker's will and design. And friends, we as Christians know this too. We as Christians acknowledge acknowledge this. The true Christian, we see our sinful heart, we recognize that we have dishonored God our Maker, and by God's grace, God sees our need for change, and He comes to help us. He opens our eyes, and so we as Christians recognize like, oh, we are really in need of this change. And God has promised throughout the Bible that by his grace, for those who repent of their sins and turn towards him, their maker and creator, he does away with our sins. All by his grace, by his mercy, by his love and compassion, and he changes our hearts, which is what Pastor Rocky preached about all last week. And this he does through Jesus Christ. The righteousness we need as we stand underneath the righteous God, we don't have it. So he sends Jesus to live the righteous life that we should have. Christ, His eternal Son, took on flesh to live the life we should have. The death that we deserve for having rebelled against God, committed treason against Him, our very Maker, Christ then dies the death that we deserved, bearing the wrath, judgment that we ourselves, His people, deserved. Three days later, he gets up from the grave showing all that the death penalty hangs over no one who confesses Christ as Lord and Savior. And then by his Spirit, for his people, he causes them to be born again. He gives us metaphorical new hearts where we know God, where we can be reconciled to God. We actually know our Maker. We know His joy, peace, forgiveness, right standing before Him. That is justification. Though we are sinful, He declares us righteous before Him. And then He adopts us into His family where He actually wants us in His family so that He would shower His love and eternal riches of mercy on us to the end of ages. Friends, you too can know your Maker. The Bible says if you repent of your sins and believe on Him. He promises for everyone who does this, you will be saved. Where you know God your maker, you're adopted into his family, you know the peace of God and the joy that comes from knowing Jesus. So where are you today? Why is it that we run, you run from your maker when salvation and knowledge of God is right before you? Or you Christian, just imagine what God is doing in the dark world. He begins to draw you out. Peter says, You have been brought out of darkness into Christ's marvelous light in 2:9. He is drawing out of people out of darkness in the light of Jesus Christ, and he's forming his people together. We are a people saved by God's grace in Jesus Christ, transformed by God's Spirit, and now we are to display his glory among the nations, holy as he is holy, loving as he is loving. Through the church, through us as Evergreen, God intends to display his glory to the watching world and to remind us of his glory as well. In this book, we've talked a ton about uh, what it looks like to display His glory to those outside of the church, but it's interesting. In our passage, He actually makes a shift, and he, He wants us to look inward again to see how it is that we, as His community, founded in the love of God in Jesus Christ, born again by His Spirit, ought to live shining our light to the world. He wants us to look, in the rest of our passage, on how we are to interact with one another inside of the church for His glory. This is what we turn to in the rest of our passage. Point number two, given the end as view, be diligent in the present things. Be diligent in the present things. By present things, this is, we're talking about what God has called us to do now. And so let's read again verses seven. Let's just read the whole passage again. The end of all things is at hand, Thus point number one, and then he switches, right? Therefore, you see the logic there, given the end is at hand, now, guys, here's what we got to do, given that reality. And then he turns to look at us. He helps us look at ourselves. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good God's strength as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are exhorted to four main things or four particular things here, right? At least in this passage. There's a whole host of things that we're exhorted towards, but here in this passage, we got four different things. We're exhorted to a kingdom mindset. We're going to go through these one by one. A kingdom mindset, a kingdom love, a kingdom welcome, and a kingdom service. So with the end in view, these are the things that we are to dial in, to hone in on as we move towards the end with the end in view. First, we are exhorted towards a kingdom mindset, a kingdom mindset. There in verse 7, it says there, be self-controlled and sober-minded. These terms here really have to do with a life of the mind. The life of the mind. It's a, these, these terms here, self-control, sober-mindedness, it summarizes like the overall mindset for the Christian as we persevere until the end. So in suffering, you, you, in your own suffering, right, you can imagine going through various trials, and it's so easy to freak out. It's so easy to lose your head and maybe wander away from Jesus Christ. And maybe, right, if someone's committing something bad against you, maybe you give in to revenge out of fear. Fear that God is not going to deliver you, and so you yourself take justice into your own hands. Maybe in that same fear, maybe you don't go out and take revenge. Instead, you run away. Maybe you might know particularly what it's like to despair to fear man. Shut up about your Jesus when someone is giving you flack for believing in Jesus, right? But instead of losing our heads, here Peter calls us to keep our heads. Again, these have to do, these words here have to do with a life of the mind. It is thinking accurately, thinking rightly, not just about the general stuff of life that's like a command that's given to every everybody. He's thinking about to us, particularly as Christians, how the Christian ought to think as they are informed by God's will, by God and His truth. What does it mean to be sober-minded, to be self-controlled as we live underneath God and His rule? Well, Well, our heads and our hearts are to be so anchored in God and His Word that we would not be blown around or tossed around like a rowboat in the midst of a storm of suffering or we stand firm, though there are these waves of false doctrine. Maybe you know someone who is being tempted by false doctrine. Well, here God calls us to be strengthened, to be self-controlled in our minds, to submit ourselves to God and His Word and so be anchored in it. Maybe you know, too, what it's like to be, to be uh, tossed around by your own emotions or maybe by your lack of judgment. Well, in the, it's in those times that he calls us to be anchored in God's Word. This is where clinging to God and His Word, His objective truth, really works to stabilize us. It keeps us from the freak out. Peter gives himself to stabilizing us, doesn't he? He, he gives himself to clearing out the clouded thinking maybe, of despair or revenge. He does this repeatedly in his book. He reminds us of the realities of Jesus Christ, that no matter your circumstances, Christian, no matter what sufferings that you may be going through, the pain that you are experiencing, you, friend, always have a living hope in your living Christ. (laughs) Even though death may come knocking at your door, you always have a living hope in your living Jesus Christ. Despite your current suffering, he promises us, reminds us, that God will in fact deliver us and lift us up in due time, as it says in chapter five. And then until then, we are called to continually trust in Jesus and be faithful. Being self-controlled and sober-minded keeps us from being tossed around. You know what it also keeps us uh, from being? It, It keeps us from being lulled to spiritual sleep. Lulled to spiritual sleep. Now, if you guys know the pressures of your life or maybe even your own carnal desires and how you are attracted to the world, what happens there is you give yourself over to those things. You could be lulled to spiritual sleep, lazy in your spiritual lives. You know, this is actually what happened to Peter himself. When he was with Jesus in the garden before Christ's crucifixion in Matthew 26, Jesus brings his disciples, right, Peter and the disciples, into the garden, and he instructs them, hey, I'm going to go pray to God my Father. As his will is working about, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to go pray. He says, you guys, be on guard, be watchful, and pray that you too may not fall into temptation. Matthew 26, 40-41. So Christ goes away to pray. But when he comes back, of course, he finds his disciples sleeping. And he responds and says, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is near, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. If we take a moment to step into Peter's mind, it's like Peter is teaching us out of his own experience to keep our heads, to be sober-minded, and to pray that we too would not fall into temptation, but that we would be faithful, and that God's will will be worked out in our lives to the praise of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus told Peter, the hour is at hand, or the hour is near, Peter tells us here, the end of all things is at hand. Just as Jesus told Peter to pray that you would not fall into temptation, the implication from Peter's words are similar. Be self controlled and sober minded for your prayers, that you too would be faithful and not given to temptation, or shrink back from following Jesus, or given to the sin that he has already freed you from. Church, we need to be sober minded and self controlled as we pray anchoring our hearts and our minds in God and His Word. Well, what is it that we should pray, you might ask? Well, to start, how about praying the very things that God wants you to do or to be from this very letter, right? We might wonder, like, what is God's will? We have God's will, actually, right here in the Word of God. Pray God's will into your life, then. And you can pray like this. You, we pray for all of us here, each other. Pray God's will over your loved one's lives, right? Christ, again, Peter holds out what is truly hope worthy. We always have a living hope on account of our living Savior, no matter the circumstances. Well, why not pray that we hope in that as opposed to the market going back up or our real estate price, for example, the home or condo, whatever you own, to bounce back up. Or how about our health, right? It's good to pray for health. We see very clearly that elders are to pray for the health and for healing. We know that's very clear based on Scripture. That While that is a good thing, though, how is it that we pray eternally minded as we deal with the temporary? All the physical stuff that's going on in our lives, how do we pray the physical in light of the spiritual that lasts into eternity? we know that we know that peter wants us to be holy we know god wants us to be holy as he is holy why not pray that we be holy as christ is holy pray that we be done with sin that we know temptation in our own hearts very clearly why wouldn't we pray that we would endure suffering should the lord call us to that as opposed to get out of it only for our own benefit why not pray that we would desire the salvation of our persecutors why not pray that we would love our very enemies so that as they see the good that God is doing in our lives for Jesus' sake, they may, as 1 Peter chapter 2 says, come to glorify God themselves. Why not pray that we would learn to love as Christ loves? Why not pray that we would live every single day, every single moment, with the end in view. Praying all of these things, right? It helps us have a kingdom mindset. And in so doing, we dial in our minds, praying over ourselves and one another that God's will would be done in our lives. Think about what you have prayed in the last week. Do your prayers reflect a kingdom mindset? That's based on the Word of God. If your answer is no, it might be worth considering that your mindset is actually not so kingdom focused. A great book and resource um, to explore this topic, what does it look like to to take God's word and pray it for ourselves, his word and his will, and pray it for ourselves is a book written by a man named D.A. Carson, former pastor, New Testament professor, now at Trinity. And uh, the book is called Praying with Paul, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. It is a fantastic book. It speaks about like how is it that we can pray when sometimes our minds are not, not there, right? He's just encouraging us to pray. He looks at Paul's prayers and he encourages us to take Paul's priorities of prayer and to make them our own, right? He's trying to encourage a spiritual reformation by helping us look to Paul and his prayers and the priorities that Paul the apostle, inspired of God and his word, has for himself, So also great chapters on there in terms of like, if God is sovereign, why is it that we pray? So super helpful. And if you come talk to me, I can, uh, I got two copies to give away, but I don't have them with me. I'll have to give them to you next week. So in so doing, we are to dial in our minds, praying over ourselves and one another that God's will would be done in our lives for his glory. Next, we're encouraged towards a kingdom love, a kingdom love. He says there, above all. Right. This is the supreme command here. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter returns to the supreme Christian virtue that he already brought up in chapter 1. But he he encourages us here to love diligently, to love earnestly. It is this Christ-like love that reminds people of ultimately, obviously, Christ's love. And displays that we are Christ's followers. And Peter tells us to love here. He gives us a reason because love covers a multitude of sins. Interesting phrase. Here, Peter seems to be referring to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, which reads, Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. So there you have the opposites, right? You got hatred and then you got love. He says, Hatred stirs up dissension, love covers over all wrongs. So just think about as, as uh, you know, someone sins against you what, what a possible response is. One is certainly hatred, right? We can be exacting of the faults of others. In our own bitterness, we refuse to forgive sin, and instead we are determined to hold them against their sins forever, into eternity, our whole entire lifetimes. Love, though, is an alternate response to someone in their sin against us. Love sees sins and then seeks to bridge the gap with forgiveness and grace. Being quick to let go. Being quick even to overlook certain situations. Now he's, not, he's definitely not calling us to sweep things under the rug as if we are not to care or not to take sin seriously. We are definitely to take sin seriously. Peter just talked about that. Be holy as God is holy. We are called here to not be an exacting community, but instead a forgiving community, right? The community of light, the light of the gospel. We are encouraged to be a gracious community in the midst of a hostile world. Uh, Think of a sin committed, you know, again, for you guys. It causes a crack in community. We have the option to blame and hold each other to our sin by pointing out sin, let's say, harshly. I'm sure we've, we've all done this. And in some ways, it causes those relational cracks to get even bigger, doesn't it? They get even wider. Maybe it becomes a gaping hole. But within the church, we recognize each other's sins, even against ourselves. And we want the one who has sinned against us to repent and know God's forgiveness and His grace all the more, calling them to repent of their sins and believe. So instead of harshness, instead of bitterness, instead of resentment, right, making the cracks wider, love Peter says, covers over. It covers over the cracks so that relationships are preserved because of Christ-like love, love. And this really is a labor of love to build up the church, giving grace as Christ has given us his grace. Certainly there are times where we need to call out sin. Matthew 18 says this, 1 Corinthians 5, no doubt, right? But never in a way that seeks vindication or self-satisfaction. We are not, as a community, right? We are not to go around looking at the faults of others or go around looking for faults in others. We are, though, to go around seeking to think the best of other people. And we're not to spend time lingering over past flaws of others, Instead, we are to stand ready to forgive one another, right? After all, the end is near. And we are going to live with our brothers and sisters for eternity, as one has said. So given the reality, we're going to live together with our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ into eternity. Now, in this hostile world, what are we to do? Love. Eagerly. Diligently. Our brothers and sisters are blood bought by our savior. Why would we not want them to love Jesus all the more, to repent of their sins and know more of God's grace and forgiveness all the more, and even to be an extension of God's grace as we ourselves forgive. Christian, are you known for being harsh when people sin against you? Are you known for being bitter are you right now maintaining a long and accurate record of how you have been wronged? Or are you eager, are you diligent, as the pastor says, to love one another with the very love that Christ has given you? No doubt, sometimes forgiving others and even having a heart that moves towards others in love is quite difficult, especially if others don't see what they've done or refuse to acknowledge it, or deny it. There's no denying that it can be difficult. But here in those moments, Christ calls us to love with the very love that He has given us. And friends, that's the only way that we can be Christ-loving community here on earth in a hostile world. Because apart from Jesus' love for us, we don't know anything of such love. It would be impossible to love in this way. And so when you wrestle with bitterness, we're supposed to look back to Jesus... And think about our own hostilities towards Him and how He has lavished His love upon us in the worst of worst situations. The ugliest of hostilities. The worst of rebellion. But yet He looks at us and He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far do I separate you from your sins. The passage that Rocky mentioned last week from Ezekiel, talks about how though we have committed wrong, God nevertheless will forgive us our sins and remember them no more. That's a promise. And friends, if it weren't for that promise, there was no way we would be ever able to live in love and be eager to love diligently even here in this community. Praise God for His inexhaustible love in Jesus Christ which cannot be measured, the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. And even as you might struggle, even today with the person right next to you trying to love them, right? Your friends, the way it works again is your friends look at you and as you're just naturally sharing how perhaps difficult it could be while still being respectful, they say, you are an interesting person. Even though people sin against you, you are right there trying to love like that is amazing so we have been exhorted already for towards a kingdom mindset right the mind of god the mind of christ as we live our lives as a a church as christians in a hostile world we are commanded to, to be grounded in the word of god and in his will we are commanded towards having a kingdom love the love of Jesus working in our body. Next, Peter wants us to be ready, offering each other a kingdom welcome, a kingdom welcome. There in verse nine, he says there, offer hospitality to one another. Offer hospitality towards one another. Now you might think like, man, this is is a weird command. In the hostile world where there's suffering, trials of various kinds, you think, why is he talking about petty thing like hospitality, right? Because we think sometimes that hospitality, all it is is I got to because of my culture, offer them tea and then coffee and I endure them for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes and then they leave. But here, actually, there's so much more than that involved in when he says offer hospitality. Offering hospitality here meant offering refuge for Christians from the hostile world. There's a refuge that they can come to out of the hostile world. So think about uh, where they're going to get, let's say, hospitality or stay or refuge. Hotels were not readily available back then, nor were they cheap. And the ones that were available usually had some shady characters. On top of that, right, there's suffering going on. There's suffering in their communities on account of their faith. So how much more important is it then for Christians to provide refuge for each other out of a love? This is like an expression of the love that we are to have. If kingdom love is an encouragement to provide, let's say, a refuge in God's grace again, a kingdom welcome is when the church offers a refuge of support for the family of Christ. So, uh, fellow church members, how's it going providing a refuge for the family of God here in this body? And of course, you can think formal, like how did the people do welcoming the people to come into the church? How did you do this morning in terms of uh, making this a hospitable environment? But I want to think about the informal Think about this informally throughout the week when the church is scattered. How are you at providing a refuge for the family of God? I was talking with uh, one young adult. I've been encouraged by this brother. And this brother was talking about how he, he has the opportunity perhaps to buy a condo or a dwelling place, a living place. And one of his prayer requests was that if he goes out and buys it, that he would use it His dwelling place as a place for hospitality towards church members. How encouraging to hear a young adult talk about how he can use the resources that God has given him to provide a refuge for us all. Super encouraging. Friends, do you see the resources God has given you to be used only for you? To build yourself a refuge? for your safety only, for your rest only? Or could it be that God has given you the resources that He has given you that you might provide for others and give others a refuge? And then is there a sense of urgency to provide for others? In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking, to, seeking someone to devour. How is that for a recovery of urgency? An urgency to love, an urgency to provide a refuge for other people, that we would be an embassy of heaven representing the welcome that God gives us in Jesus Christ. We'll pray that God would grow us in a heart that wants to see our brothers and sisters no respite rest, refuge in love and fellowship in Jesus Christ. When it comes to the practical, ultra practical, let me encourage you guys to strategize about how you can exercise hospitality, having people in this church over into your dwelling place in order that you might serve them in various ways physically, spiritually, offering them Christian friendship, brotherly love, and a refuge of support. So if you live with somebody, talk, about your, talk with your family or talk with your roommates and try and determine what, be, what works best for you in your situation. So good, basic questions to ask are, you write this down, how many times a week can we have people over? Given our energy, given our schedule, uh, given our resources, is it, if, if it's once a week, great, go do that. If it's every other week, great, go do that. And then, of course, what day works best? You've got to think about your own schedules. And as you think about these things, try and push the limit. And then, you know, if you need to back off, that's fine, too. But just try and push the limit and think, too, who can we have over? You know, here in this large church, I would encourage you to start with those in your life group or those in your branch, those you sit near to every single week, right? Most of us have sit- seats that we sit in regularly. This way, if you do, you're doing this, then fellowship then can be regular. It can be ongoing. And then as you have people over, direct the conversation, not just towards weather, the sports, your various hobbies, but then ask your friends or these people that you're trying to get to know. Ask them how it is that they come to see Christ Jesus as the Lord and Savior. How did they come to know God's grace in Jesus Christ? When, what, what circumstances was it where God opened your eyes to behold His marvelous gospel? And then share with them about how they can be praying for you. And ask them how you can be praying for them. In fact, guys, even as you, let's say, when the sermon sermon ends, and let's say the benediction is done, and uh, when Pastor Ron says, you know, by God's grace, we'll see you next week. When you get up and you guys start talking, resist the urge to talk about whatever game happened yesterday. Or whatever for me, jiu-jitsu tournament or match went on yesterday. Or for Keith, sumo, if it's sumo season. Resist that urge. We know we're going to get there, right? We know we're going to talk about that. But for a moment, just try and shift the conversation. Say, how did you find the sermon? Like, what what was encouraging? Share one thing, you know, you just talk about shit, chat about that. And imagine if we're doing this and we're disciplined to do this, we're trying to learn to talk about new things in new ways. Certainly talk about the old things, but we're gonna talk about new things in new ways. Imagine if we're all doing that. 500 people are seeking to think about, well, hold on, let's, let's think about God's grace given to us here even in the word of God and how it's gonna change our lives. For those of you who think you maybe don't have space, maybe you live with your parents, you, are, you may meet, need to be creative why not partner up with some friends and say, hey, let's cook dinner together and we're going to bring it over to your house, for example. Right? You guys can do this very readily. You can partner up together, be creative, or you can simply say, I'm just going to go buy food together with some friends, bring it over to this person's house in order to serve them. So again, imagine if four or 500 of us were seeking to do this sort of spontaneously, informally, not relying on the church for the formal activities, but we're really leaning into this Uh, every single day of the week as, as is fitting with our schedules and the stresses of life, but then at the same time pushing the boundaries of what it looks like to be hospitable. Lastly, we are encouraged to be a kingdom, as we are encouraged to be a kingdom people, God's kingdom people born again by the Spirit of God, by the grace of Jesus Christ. Peter exhorts us to kingdom service. Kingdom service, verses 10 and 11. Look there. As each has received the gift, use it to serve one another as, God, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Here, Peter is talking about spiritual gifts given to every single one of Christ's followers by Jesus himself for the building up of his body, that we might grow up into maturity, as Paul says in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians. He says there in Ephesians 4, 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And he gave gifts to men. Here in Peter's passage, he seems to be dividing up uh, spiritual gifts into two sort of big categories. Two big categories. Uh, That is, one, speaking gifts, and then number two, serving gifts. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. And there's a whole bunch of different lists of spiritual gifts in the Bible. In my opinion, none are exhaustive. And it's not like you only have one. In my opinion, you may have many. And it's not like you're stuck with one. Oftentimes, things change. But here, Peter summarizes the gifts in two categories. Again, speaking gifts and serving gifts. And no matter what gift Christ has given you, he intends us all to direct our gifts towards serving one another. Again, the building up of the church, the edification of the church. They are inher- isn't it awesome that they are inherently others focused? The gifts are not given to us that we would demand to exercise our gift in the church. No, actually God gives us gifts according to His wisdom so that we all would build one another up. So 1 Corinthians 14, 12 says, strive to excel in the gifts that build up the church. Regarding these speaking gifts, Peter commands here, whoever speaks, they are to speak as those who speak the oracles of God. Not man, but God. Oracles of God is an Old Testament way of referring to God's Word, right? Here, it encourages the gathered community to be guided by God's Word. Kingdom mentality, kingdom love, kingdom welcome. Here, we got kingdom service, and as we serve, we are to to be guided by God's Word. Now, he's not saying that when I speak, for example, I'm speaking or declaring new revelation, as the prophets did in the Old Testament, for example, before the Bible was given to us. He's saying basically that when anybody preaches, Rocky or myself or anybody who fills this pulpit, they are supposed to do so in accordance with the Word of God. We are accountable to God Himself. We are to be guided by God Himself. Those who speak and teach are also to speak with authority insofar as it matches the Word of God. So keep, remember this, Christian. Our authority, the pastor's authority, comes only insofar as it reflects the Word of God. It is tied necessarily to the Word of God. When we preach something that is not the Word of God, we don't have authority. But when we are preaching the Word of God, insofar as it accords with the oracles of God, ah, then... It is with authority. Of course, the authority comes from the king. The king has already given us his authoritative message in the word of God. So those who speak are to speak in accordance with God's word in his authority. Concerning the, the serving gifts, Peter says those who serve as those who serve with the strength of Christ. So not only are we supposed to be guided by the Word, in our service towards one another, in our our laboring to building up the church here, we are dependent upon the strength of Christ. And you see the purpose that in so doing, as we are guided by God's Word, driven by God's Word, built on God's Word, and as we serve in the strength of Christ, Christ, God, is glorified, as it says there in verse 11. Independence upon God in everything God, that we pray, that God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever as He Himself is the one who is building us into His new community. So you see the implication. When we are all serving according to Christ's design, we will be a church guided by God and His Word, and as the church loves one another in His strength that He Himself provides, God is glorified. In relation to these spiritual gifts, there are some churches that encourage these spiritual gift inventories and things like that. Honestly, I don't bank much on those. Uh, I I have taken them in years past, but they end up functioning, you know, at best as a reflection of what you think you are good at or what you like to do. And of course, we can be wrong, right? That's, that's one challenge. And then on, on top of that, right, things can change based on our own circumstances. A more reliable method that I encourage of seeing what spiritual gift you have is to simply ask the leaders around you and your loved ones who know you and who have a good pulse on you. Presumably they know your personality, right? They're gonna know your strengths. That in and of itself is a great way to submit yourself to the building up of the church, being dependent upon those around you and then the leaders of the church. Ask your friends in the church, your loved ones, what they see in you and what needs need to be filled. Another great thing to do is just begin serving where there is need, serve where there is need, right? So we don't wanna be the person, I can't serve in manual labor, setting up chairs, because I have the gift of preaching if that is us, we do not understand what the gifts are according to Scripture and how they are to function. Different ways that you can serve in relation to ministry gifts in terms of the formal. You can could, you could check out the app. they got ministry serving opportunities. Uh, but while the formal is important, again, let's go back to the informal. right? Church only happens, let's say, an hour and a half of the week. So think about the informal, all of the other hours. That is so important. And, friends, it might actually be a more accurate reflection of how you are doing in your love for the body of christ do you love for example thinking of the informal do you go out of your way to help when no one is watching when you receive zero credit here we are called to lean into hospitality and love which every single christian is called to do and to those of you who want help discerning whether you have speaking gifts, or right, you you want to help you want dis, uh, help and, and discernment in terms of whether or not you should teach the word. Well, let's talk. There are various ways that we may be able to help you discern whether or not you have speaking gifts, and of course whether or not one's character is fitting with one who wields the word in public. But we can definitely, uh, in time make opportunities for you to grow in teaching and then being evaluated and sharpened. Maybe you're considering full-time ministry. Come and talk to us. Come talk to the pastors. We have space in our budget for pastoral interns. And the internship focuses on thinking and studying and reflecting on the nature of the Christian ministry, Christ's church, and your own personal discipleship. We would love to talk to you about this. But in it all, in this fallen and sinful world, God is simply calling the church to be His compelling community founded on the Gospel, changed by His Gospel. As His kingdom people, He desires us, desires us to display His glory. He is working in us to display His glory to each other and to the watching world. With the end in view, we are to have a kingdom mindset. A kingdom love, offering a kingdom welcome, laboring in kingdom service. Friends, we know that the finish line is coming. How is it that you can persevere until the end? You can simply lean into the things that God has already called us to do. These are the present things that we need to hone in and focus on. The end of all things is at hand. Attend to the needs of the church in the power of the spirit, to the praise of Jesus Christ, dependent upon his grace that will preserve us and we will make it to the end. And here's our goal again in verse 11, that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory, dominion forever and ever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we recognize that these commands, on one hand, are so incredibly basic, but they are, at the same time, oftentimes difficult. So God, we pray that your Spirit would move in us, that we might be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, that our minds would be renewed, that we would learn to love more like you, laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters here in this place, Lord, we ask that the members here in this church will be known for sacrificial love all the more. And Lord, as a a relatively newcomer, it is incredibly encouraging to find this community to be kind hearted, to be giving, to be generous, to seek eagerly to meet the needs of the people. Lord, we pray that you would help us do this all the more eagerly and diligently. Lord, we pray that we would be able to open up ourselves and the resources you have given us so that we could meet other people's needs. And we ask, Lord, that as the world watches us love one another, that they would know that we are your disciples and maybe come to glorify you on the day of visitation. God, we pray that you would help us be welcoming. We pray also, Lord, that in our service, whether no matter what task we are doing, God, we pray that we would aim for the strengthening of this local church, the building up of this local church. And God, we ask that as you are continuing to draw others out of darkness into your spiritual light, God, we pray that the world around us would see that we are a different community, certainly not perfect, certainly in progress by the grace of God and your Spirit. But may, we, may they see us and know that we follow a loving Savior who is there for all of our needs and saving us by your grace. These things we pray in your name. Amen.